0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Deep Sea podcast. Uh, This is our October Halloween Spooktacular, Uh, so we're going to be addressing fear on this episode. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, Uh, I'm here with Dr. Alan Jameson. You doing all right, mate?
1: Yes, I'm fine, Tom.
0: Good, good. We're all good. On the last episode we spoke a lot with Alex about dark sea fish rather than deep sea fish and how those are the ones that are quite often the most monstrous and creepy looking, even though they don't tend to be that big. And for the Halloween spooktacular, let's start with one of the most primal fears of all, darkness. The fear of the dark. Darkness is obviously a big part of the deep sea. It's something that shapes the animals that live there. Do you have any recent stories, Alan, on darkness he says like he doesn't already know for podcast magic?
1: Yes, I do. So I've got a story about darkness and it all kicked off early this year when we were driving across the Saudi Arabian desert to a place called Tabak, I think it was, or Duba. So it was Duba, I think we were going. And we were travelling with two legendary Canadians. And we were, you know, to put a timestamp on it, we were at that point when we were uh, asking each other, what's all this coronavirus stuff about? Seems a bit weird, isn't it? So that was probably about February this year. So we went to uh, Duba and we joined a ship and we went out and we dove on the, the Kebrit brine pool, which was quite amazing. Um, We're working closely with the people from King Abdullah, University of Science and Technology. And after about a week or so, we had the chance to sail down to Jeddah uh, and go and visit the King Abdullah University. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, this place is like a a city in itself. It's it's fantastic. But anyway, the darkness. So we're walking around the campus, just getting the, the usual tour and things like that. And looking at all these really super impressive facilities and everything you can imagine that you could create a superhero in. Some of these amazing bits of machinery you don't understand. And you think, okay, if that went wrong, we've got Hulk. I found myself stood outside a place called the Nanostructured Functional Materials Laboratory. <laughs> I'm looking at this guy, I have no idea what that is. It had all these things outside talking about how they had made the ultimate black, and the ultra black, and blacker than black, and all this kind of stuff, and I was like, what on the earth is this about? Maybe it's the opposite of the washing powder ads when they talk about being able to produce whiter than white.
0: Well then it turns out they're secretly cheating and they're actually dying your clothes blue, because it looks whiter. <laughs>
1: Of course, then the next year they have a new improved formula, which is even more whiter than white, and it all gets a bit complicated after that. But I asked the guy. I said, like, "What's all this about? What's, how come there's a whole lab here to, just to make black, just to make darkness more dark, darker than darker?" And he said, "Well, they make the most black materials ever." I'm like, "Why?" And he says, "Oh, I don't know, but they're they're really dark, like like black."
0: Yeah. So I'm still going, all right, pushing forward the frontiers of goth technology.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. Metallica need to get down to King Abdullah's University and get into that black lab, because it's amazing. But actually, it gets better. It gets even more sci-fi, because it turns out what they've created is something called dark chameleon dimers. These dark chameleon dimers are made of gold nanoparticles that apparently can absorb more than 99% of the visible light spectrum, which is pretty impressive. So they're a combination of nanorods and nanospheres, whatever they are, and gives this material this exceptional absorbance property so it really truly is dark. And uh, they're called dark body. Uh, or dark chameleon dimers, to come close to the perfect black body. So, where did this idea come from? Well, it actually came from nature, as most cool things do. It turns out they were sort of inspired by a beetle, which, believe it or not, is whiter than white. And if I understand this right, you take the nanostructure of the wings of this particular beetle that's whiter than white and turn them upside down, you end up with something which is blacker than black. Which is pretty cool. So... These nano-rods <laughs> that are in this, they behave apparently like tiny antennas, and they pick up the light all colours from the environment. I love the idea of nano-antennas. So at this point, I should have been thinking things like, ooh, this is really interesting. I wonder if that's something that also occurs in the deep sea, given all we've been talking about, about dark sea fish and so on. Uh, but no, I was actually thinking, if you could turn this into clothing, we could become quite incredible jewel thieves. We could wear this stuff and you disappear into the night, but...
0: What would your name be? The shadow.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the nothing, the void. Oh, the void. <laughs> the dark void. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, going back into uh, timing-wise, this was just at the start of lockdown, and somewhere point of the the end of lockdown, uh, a news article sort of started to tingle my own gold nano rod antenna, and it was a uh, roughly the same story, but coming from a completely different perspective. Turns out, scientists at the Smithsonian reported that. They found a unique arrangement of pigment-packed granules in some deep-sea fish. These crazy deep-sea, dark-sea fish that we've been talking about. When the light hits their skin, as little as 0.05% of that light is reflected back. So this is basically being the darkest thing you can in one of the darkest environments in the world. But what's really interesting is, is, is me sort of saying, well, maybe I should have made the biological connection rather than the jewel thief connection. But if you read between the lines, I reckon the Smithsonian people were thinking the same. There's a quote that says, mimicking the strategy could help engineers develop less expensive, flexible and more durable ultra-black materials for use in optical technologies such as telescope and cameras and... Camouflage. Yeah. So anyway, we should really put them in touch with the guys in uh, King Abdullah, I suppose. My favourite bit of that whole story is how they discovered it. Apparently they were trying to photograph one of these deep sea fish with some super duper camera, but they just couldn't capture any of the detail in the image because... This, you know, the skin of this thing was absorbing so much light every time you took a picture of it. It just technically really wasn't there. It was just this big black space. So that was great. So, but it all makes sense. I mean, in, in the dark sea or the deep sea, whichever which way you want to look at it, every single photon of a light is enough to attract attention. So, and that intense blackness is is something that the fish has to then merge into to to avoid being viciously murdered in an unforgiving eternal gloom of darkness. The latter part of that sentence is a bit weird, but it'll make more sense later. The other thing I liked about the whole story was that partly the dark sea fish was described as being blacker than black paper and blacker than electrical tape and blacker than a brand new car tyre. I just love the idea of them testing that. Guys going out and ripping car tyres off it in the car park and bringing them in and trying to fit them under the microscope to see just how black it was. So what about these dark chameleon dimers? I was looking them up and I found they were actually in the, the Guinness World Records as being the darkest man-made substance. Which brings me nicely on to my next point, or my next news item, is Guess who else is in the Guinness World Records now, Tom?
0: Oh, I'm afraid to ask. I know there's a guy with a really big mouth and somebody with horrible fingernails.
1: No, you are, Tom.
0: Which one of those two?
1: No, they're all in it, but you're in it as well now. I'm in it as well. Yeah. So something that happened over lockdown was we were speaking to Guinness World Records over something completely different. that had nothing to do with me, but they asked me to be involved in one way or another. And uh, one of the guys from the environmental and nature bit said, uh, do you have anything? given what we do for a living. I'm like, yeah, probably I. So uh, we got we got a chat, and then I was just genuinely a bit bored and thought it was a kind of cool thing to do. So uh, cut a long story short, we now have the deepest fish ever filmed, the deepest fish ever caught, the deepest eel, the deepest octopus, the deepest shrimp, almost the deepest jelly. I haven't actually formally submitted that yet. And we have the first new species to be contaminated with plastic already, which is Eurythenes plasticus. So there you go.
0: Just rattle them off.
1: How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven world records in lockdown. Wow,
0: well, not bad for not leaving the house. Well,
1: I thought it was cool, right? And I thought, oh, that's quite a nice thing to do. And then I had a look on the website to have a look and to see see what it actually says, what the
0: see what caliber we're amongst,
1: to see w- who we share the space with,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: right? And it's like
0: it's the guy with the big mouth, isn't it?
1: We, sh- we do we do we do share the space with a, with a guy with the biggest mouth. He must be a dentist's dream. You can get like a whole like cordless drill in there. It's easy mode. It's massive. We also share that space with a man who can smash watermelons with his head. Presumably lots of watermelons in a given space of time. Uh, and there's also a woman who likes to have paving slabs smashed on her stomach with a sledgehammer. And there's the biggest drum kit in the world, a surfing dog. And a woman who's never cut her fingernails. So we've made it, Tom. We're up there. Wow.
0: Wow, this is what it feels like.
1: This is what it feels like to be stood shoulder to shoulder with a man who can smash watermelons with his head. Surfing dog. And a surfing dog.
2: Oh, we need a photo shoot.
1: We do.
0: On the last episode, we talked about the aesthetics of the deep sea and we sort of tried to pick apart our emotional uh, responses to, to these animals and to the deep sea as an environment. Uh, and we sort of started to touch upon... Something going on under the surface, ah, under the surface, gold. In, in us, in us as observers of the deep sea, a reluctance, a, a fear, something sort of lingering that influences how we view the deep sea. So I think we need to flip this. I think we need to no longer have the deep sea as a subject, but have the deep sea as almost the stimulus and turn humanity into the subject. Why, why do we feel this way about the deep sea as a whole? Who can we talk to about that? That's pretty obscure. I know a guy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, we know a guy because we've already interviewed him.
0: You're, you're ruining the podcast, mag- <laughs> on The podcast magic.
1: No, I know. All right, I know a guy. Yeah, I can, I'll, I'll get my my phone out and we'll give him a call and we'll talk to him live on air.
0: Yeah, and and suddenly the sound quality will deteriorate because we recorded it before we bought microphones. But but for the podcast magic, this is happening right now.
1: Yeah, So like, Well, we, you know, well, we kind of ruined that. So <laughs> let's. Let's just let's just bring him in. Let's just wheel him in. So, as a way of introduction, where do you start with a guy like this? He's uh, quite a colourful character in terms of uh, his successes in life. The guy's called Dr. Glenn Singleman, and he's famous for being a wingsuit pilot, a skydiver, base jumper, mountain climber. Just about any extreme sport that involves throwing yourself off something really high. Normally head first, sometimes feet first. He's not fast. He's a motivational speaker, he's a documentary maker, a media commentator, he's an expedition doctor and his day job is a physician in the intensive care unit in the Sydney Adventist Hospital in Australia. So he's a top Aussie, great guy. He was involved in the Aliens of the Deep and the Deep Sea Challenge expedition in 2012. He joined us on the Five Deeps for Antarctica and the Mariana Trench Legs. And as I say, it's really hard to know where to start with this guy, but Glenn joins us now from his house in Sydney. How are you, Glenn? Fantastic, Alan. How's yourself? Good. I'd like to start this chat with a conversation that started over spaghetti it's a conversation we had in the mess room on the pressure drop in Antarctica I think I think it was Antarctica and I was ranting about how the media always portrays deep sea and deep sea animals as aliens and monsters and I think I probably had my usual all-out assault on the the wording of the blue planets deep sea episode and and you just casually dropped in, oh, yeah, yeah, it's because the deep sea represents the human subconscious, as if that was like an obvious thing to know about. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that?
3: To, to start the explanation of this, you need to understand a little bit about analytical psychology or Jungian psychology and, and, and his symbolism and the power of symbols and what they represent in terms of art, in terms of the subconscious. And in terms of our hidden motivations. And while a lot of what Freud and Jung had to say has been surpassed by our modern understanding of you know, cognitive biases and behavioral psychology, a lot of what he, of what Jung said in particular about the unconscious. Still, I believe, is quite valid and is um, supported by a lot of behavioural psychology. And in particular, Jung always talked about our psyche, and Freud indeed, talked about our psyche being split between the conscious or the, the day-to-day stuff and then the unconscious, the, Freud called it the id. And the, the unconscious is where all of our dark motivations, the animal side of our nature, if you like, the selfish, you know, mean gene driven, dark bit of all of our psyche, which we all know is there, but we all want to repress that because we don't like to be seen in public as, you know, selfish, animalistic. (laughs) True. (laughs) Well, some some people do, but (laughs) don't want to be seen that way so we put a lot of psychic energy into dampening down or controlling those dark id, if you like, forces and we repress them and this repression comes (coughs) at a, a certain psychic cost and there are symbols that represent the different parts of our psyche and one of the traditional symbols that represents the unconscious is the ocean and people who in dreams dive into the ocean it's a metaphor for diving into the unconscious part of the mind and of course most people fear diving into the ocean because you drown you you go too deep you drown as we fear the dark aspects of our personality, so we fear the deep. And that's been an artistic, it's been a noumenal symbol throughout most of human history. In fact, if you look at most mythologies of ancient and present cultures, most mythologies have some dark deep sea monster that... Uh, comes up to the surface and pulls people down to their doom. You know the yeah, yeah. the Cthulhu, the the Jonah and the whale myth. I mean, there are just countless mythological representations of the dangers of the deep. A symbolic representation of our own, I guess, fear of the, of the dark side of our personalities and the unfortunate. Sequely so of that is that deep sea research is feared as people fear their own unconscious, so they fear the deep ocean. And so the, the idea of going to the deep sea in a, you know, submersible or whatever is something that inspires fear in most people because it's the, symbolically linked with diving into that bit of the personality that you really don't want to know about, that you're kind of repressing. And so we were talking, Alan, about how I believe that has led to deep ocean research being underfunded because people don't understand that they actually have this subconscious fear of the deep and that affects our decision making in our conscious lives as many subconscious drives do this one just makes people shy away from the. oh I don't want to know about that deep ocean stuff oh I don't want to fund that oh I don't want to you know know about what you find down there because that's where all the the dark hideous monsters live and I don't want to know about them because I don't want to know about the dark hideous monster in me
1: it's funny because we're, we're Speaking to the likes of, of Don Walsh, and I remember him saying it's been something like 60 years of people asking him about his, his challenge of deep dive. Was it scary or was it dangerous? And you must get similar things when you, when you talk about your, your, your base jumping and your wingsuit piloting and so on. Do you think that's because people are genuinely worried about your safety, or is it because they like the idea that it's scary and dangerous? They actually want that element, like the same reason why people pay to watch a horror film. It's almost the element of danger and the scariness and the the weirdness of it is actually a sort of form of entertainment. It makes a better story.
3: So I have to say, Alan, I've always believed that physical exploration is really a metaphor for an internal journey. And I always think the most interesting expeditions that I've ever been on have made me think about my own internal space. It made me explore parts of myself that I didn't really know were there, dimensions of my own psyche that I just wasn't aware of. And so when I go, you know, base jumping or jumping out of a plane in a wingsuit or doing any of those things that pushed me into a state of hyper-awareness, hyper-alertness, what the psychologist's Six Mihai calls flow, or other people call the zone. The psychologist Maslow called these peak experiences. Extreme sport is a rapid way into these peak performance states, and I think likewise, going on expeditions to weird, remote, exotic untravelled places that's a a metaphor or a reminder or opens the possibility of well what are the weird unknown untravelled unexplored parts of myself that I mean that to me is why exploration is is truly addictive and I think if you read the journal's of all the you know the classic explorers of old you know if you read Shackleton's stuff Shackleton and Scott while they love to talk about how yes we're filling in a blank on the map and we're doing it for science they weren't doing it for science at all they were personally motivated by going into the zone by discovering sure they were discovering parts of geography but they were discovering bits of their own psyche. So yeah. Shackleton was absolutely in his element when he was caught, you know, in a little dinghy in the middle of the ocean and then stranded on Elephant Island and lost in the wilderness, this, for him, was the opportunity. He was doing it because he was in the zone. If you read the really read the, the actual diaries of all of the great explorers, that's what motivated them. And so... I guess I'm exploring a different realm now, you know, not only with skydiving and wingsuiting, but, you know, I also go mountaineering and go on the expeditions like we've been on together, Alan. Like I said, to me, these remote unknown environments are a way that I can transition into those remote unknown parts of myself and really go on a you know, I hesitate to use the word deep dive, but you know
1: what I mean. Well, kind of ties it all rather nicely together. But so, I mean, you obviously work on the psychology of this and trying to convince people that you can face these fears and you can overcome it. And 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 I remember watching you give a presentation on this about how there's no amount of fear is isn't something that can be overcome. But how then do we deal with that in a deep sea environment where this sort of archetypal global resistance, if you like, to deepest, darkest fears and deepest, darkest waters and so on. How do you reverse that trend? Is this something like the fear of flying that no matter how much you show people, there will always be a sort of kickback in that, you know, it's not something you can just cure? But with all these different things that are going on just now, like sort of wave of submersible dives, and, and obviously we're bringing back sort of HD, 4K beautifully illuminated videos from the deep sea to show that it's not a scary place. There are no monsters there. Just because it's far from the surface doesn't mean it's dangerous and so on. Do you think that's going to help this? Do you think there'll ever be a time where the sea is just a sea and it's not shallow sea, which is lovely and nice, and deep sea, which is scary and weird? Actually, I do, Alan, because technology
3: got us, well, or sort of most of the human population, got us over our fear of of flying because we use aircraft now and, you know, in the non-COVID era, there are at any given time thousands of aircraft in the sky at any given moment. And all of us, or most of the um, Western world anyway, uh, enjoy the experience of being able to travel around the world flying like a bird. If you look back through through history the fear of flying was rightly associated with death few chinese emperors the ones who were testing the first parachutes threw a lot of prisoners off cliffs to see you know what how how tall a cliff you have to fall, be thrown off to die and whether certain types of parachutes will stop you dying and all of that they did quite a scientific investigation of true dangers of height but We've overcome that with technology. And similarly, I think we'll overcome that fear of the deep with technology when, as you know, Alan, the new Triton submersible, the LF, the limiting factor, it's a vehicle that is now commercially rated to go to any part of the seafloor. So when these kinds of vehicles become more commonplace and people are able to experience for themselves the wonder of going into this incredible environment that they'd never experienced before, then I think, you know, I think deep sea, ocean research will really open up because we'll have the technology. But the technology will, uh, I mean, dissipate people's unconscious fear, just as it has done with aircraft. I I suspect that the new Triton vehicle will be the herald of a a whole new era of deep ocean, not only deep ocean exploration, but also deep ocean tourism and people wanting to go on expeditions to, let's face it, the the ocean is 70% of the planet, so most of us don't know what it's like on the, uh, on the floor of the ocean, nor do we understand the incredible flora and fauna of these uh, incredible environments. And that, that's just been a product of a technological lack up until now. That's going to change. Oh, I'm hoping, I believe, that will change very rapidly into the future.
1: I always think the best thing we should be is erase that imaginary line between shallow and deep and just call it the sea. I think that, that, yeah. that, that's a sort of psychological line in the sand. I mean, you wouldn't have a, a situation whereby you are at the, the edge of a rainforest and say, right, guys, we're going to study the first 100 metres of this rainforest. Anything after that? Nah, it's too scary <laughs> to where it's too deep. We're not, going, we're not going that deep into the rainforest. Let's just ignore the other 98.5 percent of the rainforest because it's you know it's kind of difficult to get to <laughs> you know yeah. it's that kind of thing and, and, and there's lots of analogies like that you can use but as soon as you turn a horizontal distance to a, a vertical depth I think psychologically everything changes and you just go oh I know mean, I, I wrote this thing a while back about uh, pollution at the, in, in the bottom of the Mariana Trench uh, and you think about what what is 11 kilometres underwater? And and when you think about that, it's frightening. You think, oh my God, the pressure is over a tonne per square centimetre. This is an unimaginable extreme environment. So then I worked out, so what else is 11 kilometres? If you take that depth and turn it 90 degrees into the horizontal, it's only half the distance of Manhattan. It doesn't seem that deep anymore. Uh, and Interestingly, if you turn it up, you know,
3: 11 kilometres straight up, well, you're in another extreme environment that has traditionally been feared
1: for a long time. Well, that's to say that, that, that you know, 36,000 feet down is horrendous underwater, but up is what people regularly fly at. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not that weird anymore. So it is a psychological thing. It's not a genuine issue, which I think is really an interesting concept to explore.
3: No, it's only not an, an issue if you have the technology. And, you know, that's what we've kind of lacked up until now. There were just sporadic infrequent, occasional vehicles like what, you know, what Don Walsh and Jacques Picard used. And since then there's literally been a handful of vehicles that could do it. But now I think with the, you know, these new vehicles that that are just being sort of prototyped and, you know, now developed, I think there's going to be a huge change in hum- humanity's understanding of what
1: is possible so let's get a little bit more personal then so of all the exciting deep sea stuff that you've done personally is there a particular moment for you that stands out it's been the most thing the mo- thing you're most proud of or the, or the one that when you think back and all your underwater adventures that that's the link
3: yeah going to the titanic i mean that that is an incredible it's an incredible experience i went down in the mere submersible. Um, as part of a James Cameron expedition uh, a few years ago. The thing that always, that really blew me away about going to the Titanic was how titanic the Titanic is. And what I mean by that is most people had yeah, their concept of the Titanic as shaped by a television screen or a, a cinema screen. Yeah. And you look at the cinema and you think, oh, that's big. You know, that's nothing compared to what the actual wreck is like. When you get down there, travelling around this gigantic, gigantic wreck, and to see the incredible amount of damage that was caused by the sinking and all of the history there right in front of, of just on the other side of the viewport, that's an experience that really, I wasn't expecting that, and that absolutely blew me away, but... There are other moments that I've been incredibly proud of. I mean, I was incredibly proud when uh, I was part of the team that helped James Cameron go down to the Mariana Trench on the first solo expedition in 2012. And, uh, And on that one, I was particularly proud because I was part of the team that designed his life support system. So it's always oh, right. good when you design a life support system to see that it keeps someone alive. It <laughs> <laughs> was a bonus <laughs> So right. and, uh, and again, I was incredibly proud of the team that you were a part of, Alan, when, you know, when Victor Vescovo went down to the deepest point of, uh, of the five oceans, and that was an incredible both not just technological achievement but an incredible personal
1: and scientific achievement. That was a real busy ten days though. I think of all the ones we did, I think the Mariana was probably the most most epic yeah. when Lander deployments. Uh, five sub dives and uh, five dives in ten days. It just sort of
3: put everything else. I mean it took you know thousands of years of history to get well, say two hundred years of technological history to put Don Walsh and Jacques yeah. Picard down there. And then it was another 30 years until James Cameron went down. And then six years later, the limiting factor with Victor Scobo and yourself does it five times in 10 days. It just shows what an in, like a quantum leap in technology that the vehicle really is.
1: Think about this this chat we're going to have, I was looking up your Wikipedia page just to get a, remind myself of all these things you've done, and it's just this enormous list of crazy things. So I'm thinking, well, you know, be something huge you want to jump off head first, right?
3: Yeah, well, I've always got one of those in my But, but that's, that's now your problem, Alan, because you've been to the deepest, so everything else is, is shallower.
1: And that, that, that has been a bit of an issue, is what to do next. Because we've yeah. been at this for 20 years and it's always been, I actually remember, I don't know—I think I actually said to you, Tom, at some point, it was 2017. I remember in my office having a bit of a day thinking, we've been to all these trenches so many times. We've covered, you know, we've done hundreds of deployments of landers and we've discovered all these things. And I genuinely felt there's nothing else we can do with the gear that we had. I think we're just doing the same stuff over and over again. This is becoming, it's, it's plateauing out. It's becoming stale and boring. And it was honestly, I was probably within a month. I get this random email from the sub company in Florida. Going, out. Oh, we've just read your book. Could you sign this NDA and speak to this guy Patrick? And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, on the phone, and the guy, you know, he explains the five tips. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. We're doing that because it's that's just that next level up. And there was a lot of wrangling going on in that whole thing because obviously the, the the primary objective was very much not scientific, but we we're trying to get the most out of scientific, but and now we've got this Ring of Fire thing, which is more scientific. So coronavirus is kind of destroying our big finale to the whole thing, mm. uh, which is a bit of a shame. But I think, I think Victor's very misunderstood. I think I misunderstood him as well. I think what he's trying to do is actually quite interesting. But he comes across as being, I just want to do it to say I did it. But I think whoever, t- whoever gets that system, gets the ship in the sub, will have a responsibility to do something fantastic with it. And, you know, and I'd, I'd like to think we can go back to some of the places we, we visited briefly in the five deeps and go out there for a long period of time. I mean, in Tonga Trench, for example, we did one dive. But in that day before that one dive, we found a, a wall that was over a kilometer high and 68 miles long <laughs> at 10,800 meters deep. And, you, know, you, you know, we could go there for a month and just spend a month on that wall. And I <laughs> think that's, that's, that's the next phase, which I think is going to be really, really brilliant. It's going to be fascinating. Jenny, I could talk about this stuff all day. I think it's fascinating. I really, I, I just, it makes so much sense when I think back of all these conversations I've had with people and you think it all comes back to this. This is, this is not a, something on the fringes of, of exploration of the deep sea. This is something which is at the core of it. But it doesn't have a, this whole topic doesn't really have a voice. And a good examples. is that article that you helped me write. I tried to submit that a couple of times to journals and they just kept coming back saying, no, no, we need hard data. You know, your opinion an educated opinion or a critique is no longer even allowed in science anymore. What we've done with that article is basically I've tried to expand it into an entire book. That's where I'm going with it because it doesn't seem to have a place within the normal mainstream literature. Well, I think it would be a really interesting book. The, the, the stereotypes involved in deep-sea exploration are, are everywhere.
3: Well, we are psychological beings, so all of our interaction with nature has to by its essence be colored by our own psychology our prejudices our faults
0: you know we have things like statistics because we we know we can't trust our biases we know we're yeah. we're pattern hunting animals you need this cold impartial statistics just to to free you from your own mind
1: yep yep yeah exactly just yeah. to wring out the character and everything that you do
0: it does. It, suck. It, it by very nature, it has to suck out all the personality because that's what's contaminating the data. <laughs> it's incredible,
3: brilliant. All right, Glenn. It's nice to speak to you. It's yeah, lovely to see you. to you, and Alan. Uh, and
1: great to meet you, Tom. So, thinking on that same subject, this is this and some of the topics we've discussed already is kind of coming to an actual conclusion. I think we've covered quite a lot of different aspects of this, but. Where all this stemmed from was a meeting we went to a couple of years back now in the Royal Society, and there was a whole bunch of scientists there, all deep-sea related, and what struck me was the number of people who either mentioned or actually had a slide that said something like along the lines of, why don't people care about the deep-sea? And it was never really discussed.
0: There's a New Yorker cartoon as well, which I love. People gathering, obviously, for like a coffee morning or something, and one is saying to the
1: other... Uh... I don't know why I don't care about the deep sea, but I don't. Yeah, that that, that that's it. So, I, you know, I remember we, we sat in the pub afterwards and we were sort of chatting away about this and what it actually is. And over the months after it, I really sort of started to get into it a bit more. And I, it was actually meeting Glenn that kind of solidified that this is something we should maybe try and write down or something we could try and articulate a bit better. Because how it came across was more like scientists saying, well, we care, so why don't you? Which I don't think really works. Or we're telling you this is important, so why aren't you listening? And I think it's maybe to take a step back and try and understand what underpins that lack of interest in something where, in reality, people will never engage with. So it is an interesting subject. So that sort of self-analyzing industry, I thought was a really good thing. And, and 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 again, meeting Glenn and talking about it more from a sort of human fear perspective really, really brought that to the surface. It all stems from the fact we are air-breathing, visually-orientated animals. You know, historically, through most of our time on this planet, we've had an inherent fear of the dark called nyctophobia or scotophobia there you go i looked that up but the fear of deep water is thalassophobia. right and fear of deep water seems fairly natural thing for an air-breathing mammal because it's not an environment in which you're going to survive very long and when you think about the fear of deep water and fear of the dark and you think of commonly used phrases like deepest darkest fears
0: can i offer an interjection there we we can drown just fine in a few feet of water i find it interesting that we are so specifically afraid of deep water.
1: It's because there's no escape. Once you're in deep water, you're dead. If you're in shallow water, there's a chance you can get to the surface. The air is only a breath away. Right. It's it's a lack of hope. Yeah. And remember, the shallow water gave us food and navigation across, you know, island to island and so on and so on. It gave us all sorts of really interesting things, which were beneficial. But the deep water bit didn't. So once you're in deep water, you're 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 done essentially, right? You're 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 out of your depth, which is another saying like "deepest darkest fears," which. Occur in everyday language We don't necessarily think about where they've, where they've stemmed from So I think when humans are placed Into or are imagining these types of environments The imagination starts to take over Because they're not places you normally find yourself It's not places that we've evolved to adapt to It's something we've evolved to stay away from So especially when you've got physical evidences lacking So if we're not showing people how the world works uh, And how benign it might be Or how interesting it might be That imagination fills that void and that's where you come into all these scary fish and all the rest of it and, and everybody's subconsciously maintaining this sort of reluctance or fear of, of deep and dark water. So much so that it's it's archetypal, which means human cultures since the dawn of time have all tended to have imagined their own deep sea monster. I've got a list of them, actually. I listed them out. I did quite a lot of research on this because it's fascinating. It really, it genuinely is fascinating, but I can't read you the names of them because I can't pronounce half of them. I'll throw my hands up and say I'm, I'm, I'm no good at this. Avank, Cymru, Wales. Kitos, Skila, Idra.
4: In Finnish culture, we have Iku Turoso.
1: Kappa from Japan.
5: Rusalka from Slavic culture, it's more mermaid than a monster.
1: Deep sea monster in
2: Scots Gaelic is Ullavejt Doinach Numara.
1: But there are deep sea monsters from the Welsh, the Irish. There's loads from the Greeks. Uh, There's ones from uh, Finland, Norway, Japanese ones. There's ones in Hebrew cultures, Hindu, Congolese, Inuit, Slavic, Icelandic, Celtic, Polynesian, Mesopotamian, and Peruvian. With no cultural exchange. Yeah, there there were times where these cultures never met each other, yet they all had their own deep sea monster. It's making that transition from what seems like a bizarre, almost enigmatic fantasy to science. Fact is an interesting one. So if you think about the days of the HMS Challenger expedition in the 1870s, within the lifetime of that crew, who were going around essentially trying to work out whether you could lay subsea cables across oceans, and they were laid the, the, the groundwork for uh, mapping the oceans in three dimensions, and, and, uh, and they, did a, they really kind of launched deep sea biology as a thing. In their lifetime, there was a common belief that the increasing water density with depth would result in submerged or sunken objects finding neutral buoyancy at different points. So you would end up with a layer of skeletons of dead sailors and you go down a bit deeper and you'd find all the anchors and the shot and the cannonballs. And, they, and they'd be believed that the only thing that was heavy enough to get to the deepest point would be gold, which is odd because it's, gold's not that heavy in the grand scheme of things. But
0: I think there's just something mystical about gold.
1: Yeah, it's just a sort of prestigious thing, isn't it? It's like the best thing, so, yeah. But people generally believed that. At the time where we're, we were doing science really in the deep sea for the first time. So that must be quite difficult. And that's
0: a horrific image. That's a really scary image of just these these ghost ships sailing the oceans at neutral buoyancy.
1: Yeah, but then it comes from how this information is is delivered to the masses. So even at that time, the idea that the deep sea was a physically unobtainable and inaccessible space was almost promoted by Jules Verne in eighteen seventy, when he wrote Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. He had sunken ships floating in the deep pelagic. Like, whole ships just, like, hanging there, drifting around. And, you know, if no one's got anything to counteract that with, then people just go, oh, wow, wow, deep sea's weird, isn't it?
0: In a vacuum, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems absurd now, but at the time that probably made a lot of sense. I mean, that's, that's quite an extreme case of, if you imagine the scientist on Challenger down the pub with someone goes, is it true that the ships sort of hang mid-water and there's like a layer of skeletons and a layer of, of anchors? Is that true? And they're going, no, not quite. I think that dichotomy of opinion is, to some degree, still there. It might not be quite as wide, but I think it is still there. It's that notion that the deep contains monsters, I think, is so culturally pervasive that, in fact, it is, that psychologists and, and, and mythologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists have researched that. There is actually stuff written on this. There's a whole books written on, on the whole concept of archetypal fear of monsters and stuff like that. So
0: Most of our fears and our sort of mythical monsters and things like that have a little bit of grounding, have a little bit of, it's a bear, it's a snake, it's it's something that maybe our ancestors may have been afraid of. Whereas giant squid isn't going to get you. These, these really are pure fantasy, it yeah. seems. These are entirely conjured by the human psyche. There's not... You know, we know now there's big hephalopods, but I don't think it was killing people. No. I don't think that they have any first-hand experience with these animals. They represent the environment. They represent the danger of the deep sea rather than being a representation of an animal.
1: But then going back to the wording in terms of phrases and, and sentiments that we use every day, if you think about where the deep sea fits into that, it becomes quite interesting as well. When you think about things like heaven is always being up and hell is always down, right? We don't necessarily talk about the celestial bodies as being something horrifying, in the way we do talk about the deep sea. In fact, we can almost celebrate space exploration.
0: But the sp- the forces are just as destructive. Yeah, they they tear you apart just yeah. as quickly. <laughs> and then if you think
1: about the wording we use for things like deteriorating mental health or experiencing difficult or bad times, you, you, you're you describing them as being, you know, you're feeling down or you're rock bottom or, again, your deepest, darkest fears. But when your things are good and happiness and everyone's back in the game again, you talk about being on top of the world or high as a kite or on cloud nine and things are looking up. So you have that directional subconscious that down is bad and up is good. And it probably doesn't help that some of the wording we use in Deep Sea kind of lends itself to that. For example, you know, when we talk about depths of 3,000 to 6,000 metres you're using the word abyssal. When you talk about depths greater than 6,000 metres, you're talking about Hadal, which abyssal means a deeper, seemingly bottomless chasm. And Hadal is derived from Hades, which is the lord and kingdom of the underworld where souls go after death in Greek mythology. You know so you, you know we're already laying that down and saying this is a horrible place and then
0: we've got to get up there and get make people care about
1: it. <laughs> yeah, we, we could rename the hills Zone Lovey Dovey Lala Land, something a bit more positive. Anyway, so yeah, you had a you had a thought there about life and death and this whole positive and negative with distance from the surface.
0: Yeah, I, this one is almost a little bit based in truth, but I think it's still very much a human bias. So I think in the in the shallow surface waters, you know, they're bathed in sunlight. It is growth, and it is production, and it is new life, and it is birth. And then we do have this idea, and it and it's it's true to to quite a solid extent that things die, and there is a a rain of corpses and of waste and of filth. I think it's part life and death, part clean and and dirty. And then these carcasses rain down, so there's at the bottom there's an ooze, and there are animals that are sort of scavengers and and starving and disgusting in themselves. And I I think. That might even have a little bit of a, an evolutionary underpinning for what animals we should eat. You know, you, you you can see people say things about certain animals people eat. It's just like, oh well, that's a scavenger, or oh, that's a bottom feeder. Bottom feeder is a is a sort of derogatory term for uh, certain types of fish that people eat. I think that's another layer to it as well. Glenn was saying how it represents the subconscious and something that we don't want to acknowledge and we want to repress within ourselves. But I think there's this life-death-clean-dirty sort of dichotomy as well.
1: So this whole idea that there's a certain amount of belief within the populace about what the deep sea is and how it functions and whether we should care about it or not, and there's obviously the the opposite, which probably comes from the scientists and conservationists and so on who are saying, you know, this is something we should really care about, this is something we should do. But then we have to look in the middle. Well, how are they forming that opinion? That's what matters. And then you look at where do they get their information from? Okay, so this is like epistemology. Where 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 are you getting your information from? Not everyone goes to university and studies deep sea science, right? They're getting it from somewhere. So let's have a look at Blue Planet Two. Alright. So we're no way picking on Blue Planet Two in any way, shape or form. You know, it's a great documentary series and so on. It's you know, it's phenomenally successful. Viewed by millions worldwide. It might be the reason why a lot of people are listening. It might be the reason why a lot of people are listening. Yeah, and I think it's just it's it's not a this is not a a rant against Blue Planet in any way, shape, or form. It's just it's the latest one. It's the latest one to have done this, and it's a symptom. I think it's it's worth just analysing the wording they use in the deep sea episode compared to the other episodes. The whole idea of the times of the Challenger when people had these preconceived notions, and then there's probably a bunch of science saying that's not true is still alive. It's not quite as dramatic as it was in the Jules Verne days, but I think it is still there. So if you tune into episode 2, The Deep, and have a think about the wording, I managed to get a transcription of this, which was really interesting. We've already talked about the moon analogies, right? We've done that in the first episode. There's a whole bunch of those it starts off with. So we're starting off by saying we know more about a lifeless rock floating in a vacuum than we know about the deep sea. So we've been through that. But what's interesting is that it uses words like, or phrases like, what secrets lie beneath? Okay, so it's making it mysterious. It says to, quote, enter an unforgiving world and an alien environment, and it describes it as a sea of eternal gloom and perpetual darkness, a big black void inhabited by strange creatures and alien-like creatures, where in this blackness creatures live beyond the normal rules of time. Those are all direct quotes from Blue Planet 2. And you're like, all right, well, I don't care about that place. (laughs) That sounds awful.
0: Yeah. That's the voiceover from the beginning of a Doctor Who episode. I can hear the... Yeah. Like mean, building in the Basically, background. it doesn't
1: sound like something people would want to experience or should really care about in their daily lives. But it does sound like really good entertainment. That's I guess that's the difference, right?
0: Yeah, you don't turn off.
1: So we'll analyze some of those words. You know, you've got gloom that means partial or total darkness. And it could be a state of depression or despondency. And eternal, of course, is without end. The definitions of alien can mean anything from foreign country to something unfamiliar or disturbing or a hypothetical creature from another world. It's the other. And this is a natural history documentary trying to teach you about the world by telling you it's otherworldly. So this leads people to infer that the largest living space on the planet is an unfamiliar, miserable, unforgiving and off-world environment. So then how do we then expect people to apply this in the quest for an intimate relationship with the deep sea? and to develop a wanting of stewardship for the most important habitat on the planet. It's not being sold very well. That's what it comes down to. It's really bad PR, <laughs> essentially. And we can go back to some of these, these, these other statements. It doesn't end there. Those are the sort of more mystical and, and weirdness it's trying to apply to DBC. But there's other things which are interesting things to pick apart. It's this repeated mention of surprises. For example, when it describes the depth beyond the photic zone, the narrator reports that incredibly there is life there. And when describing the polar environments, he says one might expect that the waters would be truly barren. OK, but in both instances, we've known the contrary for decades, if not 100 years. But we're still laying that idea down that, wow, I can't believe anything actually lives here. I said, like, well, we've known for like 100 years. So when they come to our little ethereal snailfish, Tom, remember that? Uh, I remember that fellow well. That was a good day. That got in there. So we're quite pleased with that. But then he said no one imagined an animal as complex as a fish could ever exist in such extreme pressures.
0: I'm raising my hand.
1: we've known that there's been hailed fish now for 113 years 113 years we've known this fish really super deep and we're still punting this idea that oh that shouldn't be there oh don't like that and that's what I find quite weird on the subject of the hailed zone the documentary also states that it was once thought that nothing whatsoever could possibly survive right so we're not even talking about fish now it's just nothing should survive in the hailed zone that's not been true for over 100 years either okay and the existence of life greater than 10,000 metres was unequivocally proven over 70 years ago so when are we going to stop saying we don't know this, and when are we going to stop saying that we're surprised by this?
0: Wasn't the gap very, very close between discovering there was a Hadal zone and finding life in
1: it? It was within ten years, I think. The, the unequivocal proof of life beyond ten thousand meters was a sponge that the Galathea pulled up in a trawl from the Philippine Trench. It was still attached to the rock and it was still alive, or recently killed by the trawl. But uh, you know, life greater than six thousand meters goes way back to something like nineteen oh six. So, you know, when are we going to stop telling people that we're surprised that we're finding anything at all? And that that's the kind of weird thing. So the subtext is basically that you thought that nothing could for you, right? Hence, the content is designed to satisfy the audience's preconceptions rather than challenging them or informing them. And if you want to move on and change people's perception of this, you have to challenge them, you have to re-inform them and not just tell them what they want to hear. So no other episode emphasises how much we don't know about a subject. So if, if, if you think about how that deep-sea one was put together and you look at all the other ones, it never talks about how much we didn't know about dolphins or manta rays 100 years ago. It doesn't talk about how we just didn't understand what corals were. You could probably rewrite with the same wording. I mean, a coral, I mean, if there's ever an alien-looking animal on this planet, surely a coral is one of them. But we like them now, so we're happy with those now. We don't talk about how much we didn't know about corals 100 years ago. But we keep that nonsense alive when you, as soon as you go deeper. That's what's the thing I find really bizarre coming back to blue planet itself i mean it's 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 there for entertainment first and foremost it's storytelling It's just frustrating when you hear a bunch of deep sea scientists in the room who can't, can't seem to understand why no one cares and then they sort of applaud how amazing the deep sea episode was where the reason why nobody cares is things like that episode because it's great entertainment for the entertainment for for an night over a couple of beers. but then it doesn't make you go out and go right out I, I need to I need to save this place I need to go out and, and experience this and do something about it before it's too late you just think ooh spooky
0: it's a shame that they don't push against that and buck the trend but i don't think that these feelings are coming from this media directly i think that they're just not challenged by it and they're and they're fortified by it it's brought in from the subconscious into the conscious the thing that you intrinsically know and you believe isn't challenged because that might lose viewership and you might not like that so it's then reinforced and brought into your conscious and your yes i i felt that way and i've been vindicated and it's a nice show When we interviewed Don Walsh in episode two, he said one of the questions he's always asked is, was he scared when he did that very first Mariana dive? So we thought he'd be a good person to talk
2: to about fear and why we fear deep water.
1: Don, thinking about fear and the way in which people respond to and, and sort of imagine and react to the idea of going into deep water, is it something that you think is a sort of archetypal almost primeval fear of that type of environment or is it a, a lack of trust in the technology or is it a, a lack of trust in themselves? Going back to that original question is why do, why do people always ask, is it scary?
5: I think fear is a, is a very personal thing and that events and things uh, affect other people differently. In my case, of course, the most common question I've gotten over the years since, well, six decades since I dove the Trieste into the deepest place in the ocean, was were you ever scared? And my answer is simple. You don't have time to be scared or have fear. And fear tends to dilute your acuity in being able to sense what's going on around you and react properly. It's, uh, you haven't got time to be scared. and A person that is overloaded with, with fear, you shouldn't be doing that because now you're not at the top of your game. I was in submarines, U.S. Navy, for a few years before I went to the Trieste program. So being underwater in kind of a claustrophobic condition was a way of life for me. To some degree, the Trieste thing was an extension of that. Because after all, you can drown in a bathtub. A few centimeters of water or several kilometers of water, the result is the same. You're dead. And uh, so we never let fear in the door. And I never felt it. I never felt it was out there. We just got on with the job. We were well trained. We worked very hard to know the machine we were using. Pretty well knew all of its, if you will, its moods, and uh, the noises, what's normal, what's not normal. Your your whole job was to remove as many variables as possible, things you could control and work out of the system before the ultimate test. Then when something happened and you were on your game, you were able to react right away. You knew what to do and to uh, take care of it. But uh, fear was never my, my constant companion. I thought of what ifs. If this happens, then I'm going to do this. What if that happens? You're always working that. And it's not being nervous nelly, if you will. It's just a, a conscious way of using all of your training, all of your experience to react to an unusual situation. And that applies, okay, in the air, my experience as a pilot, to uh, being in under the water with a bathyscaphe or a submarine. I, you know, I'm not saying after the effect, and this is quite common when you have a really challenging experience. Your knees may not stop knocking for a few hours, but the instant you have to do something, you're very calm and collected. That's been my experience. Afterwards, we have time to reflect on the what-ifs. Then you might worry about ex post facto. It's not during the event. So you're able to function and take care of what's happening and resolve any problems. And that's, I think, very normal. You talk to a Pilots who've had very difficult experiences, and they'll say, yeah, geez, uh, we took care of it, and I got back okay, but it took me about an hour to get out of the cockpit.
1: So what was the story about you being in a submarine in the illusion trench, and you experienced the shockwave of an earthquake, is that right?
5: Yeah, we had been uh, up in in the Bering Sea in February in wintertime. And so we had gone down through the Aleutians, through the Unimac Pass, into the North Pacific, and the North Pacific was really rough, and we were getting beat up, and we were tired anyway from two weeks of being in the in the cold. The captain said, look, let's just submerge uh, for the night. We'd all get a good night's sleep. And because the heavy swells, you could feel them down a couple hundred feet. We went down about 300 feet, which was our maximum allowed depth on that getting a good night's sleep, and about 3 in the morning there was this great thump, and the whole ship shook. The depth went from 300 to 700 feet. Well, I mean, this collapse depth on our submarine was about 500 feet. So it was a matter of concern. The next morning when we surfaced and got the radio traffic, we found out that we were right over the epicenter of about a 9.5 earthquake. And so what we felt was overpressure. In other words, our distance below the surface of the ocean was was just 300 feet. Uh, The overpressure uh, took us to 700 feet, like a depth charge. And, and so we didn't go that deep physically, but the hull felt the pressure of 700 feet. And it's the only known case of a uh, submarine being right over the epicenter of an earthquake, at least that survived. I actually wrote a magazine article called Those Stout Manitowoc Boats because. Our submarine was built in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, by, you know, fifth-generation Scandahoovian shipbuilders, and it was just real craftsmanship. Five shipyards in World War II that built submarines, and the Manitowoc were always famous for being the sturdiest submarines.
0: For this episode's Tales from the High Sea, Heather Stewart, who can tell what a rock is thinking just by looking at it, shares a story of things getting a little bit crowded out at sea.
4: A number of years ago, I was doing a cruise out to the North Atlantic, out to the Rockall Trough and Hatton Bank, which lies off the west coast of Scotland. And, you know, all of us have done quite a lot of travelling over the years to various oceans. And I don't think I've had as much weather downtime as I have working in my own backyard. Anytime I go into the North Sea or the North Atlantic, yeah. <laughs> so it was one of those trips and uh, literal hurricane force weather forced us onto sort of plan Z of all of the backup plans that we'd ever conceived. And so we ended up, um, instead of bobbing around Hatton Bank and uh, Rosemary Bank uh, doing some amazing coring, we ended up bobbing about the northwest of Scotland. So round about the Summer Isles and Loch Loughlinny and all these amazing, beautiful places. And um, we woke up one day and realised that we were surrounded by frigates and destroyers and helicopters and jet planes flying overhead. (laughs) What the hell's going on? Is World War Three broken out without us knowing? And they deserve a
0: parade. So yeah, it's about time. Yeah,
4: well, you know, (laughs) it was very, very surreal because apparently there is a, a regular no, if it's NATO or I think it might be called um Operation Neptune now. Apparently it's a regular exercise for the military. And the northwest of Scotland is the regular stomping ground for this. But because we had never expected to be in this area, we had not even factored this into our planning for I've it. We'd not
0: read the notice board.
4: we have not read, you know, the NATO notice board, which <laughs> is, is the first port of call for all geology expeditions, which was fine, except they were doing fake mine laying and fake bombing runs and stuff. So we had to let them know where we were going to be so that they weren't going to accidentally target us. Not that they were using live rounds and stuff, but there was something a little bit sinister about receiving these communications from high command, saying, where exactly are you going to be for the next 12 hours? Because we'd like to use you as uh, something to track for our submarines. It's like, well, what do you mean by track? And they're like, well, we're going to jam you, pretend that you're our target.
0: Plan in meticulous detail how we would kill you in a split second if we decided to.
4: Exactly. I think the most surreal moment of the entire episode, being in the middle of a, a military exercise, we've got all these multiple nationalities, the Americans, the Brits, the French, the Belgians, you know, they were all there, was that we started getting emails into our really informal blog. Blogs back then weren't as organized as they are now. And um, we started getting these emails from the US Navy. And they were emailing us going, I'd like to ask you to take down all of the photos and the information that you're posting on your blog. And we were like, well, well, because um, we'd started taking some photos because, I mean, the, the ships were spectacular and they were really close to us and everything, you know. And so we're taking some pictures. And if you type in the ID numbers on the bow into Google, it tells you the name of the ship and the history of it and why it's named certain things. So we thought, oh, this is amazing information on the on the history of the names You're part of this, history. so you
0: might as well get into it.
4: Yeah, so put some of that information up and the US started emailing us, going to take that information down that's classified.
0: Do Don't you paint it? it on the side of the ship.
4: Well, that's what we emailed back. <laughs> like, you know, They were got so shirty. It was unbelievable, but we stood by it. And there's lots of, you know, sort of anorak websites that totally track all of these events and stuff. It was really, really good fun. But I think getting um, hate mail from the US Navy was a definite highlight. And just getting the information, just could you maybe make sure that you're not working in Little Lock Broom tomorrow? You know, it'd be better if you are in... You know, like the main part of the Summer Isles.
0: We're going to no, make the lock bigger. bigger.
4: Yeah, so all those submarine landslides that you're mapping. Yeah, we're going to make a, a few
0: more. <laughs> I'd hate you to spend all this time mapping and then come back and it's all different.
4: No,
0: it's all changed. <laughs> it's all changed. Oh, that's
4: cool. Yeah.
0: That brings us to the end of episode four, our Halloween spooktacular, uh, where we learnt a lot about fear, actually, and our, our own internal biases. Uh, you may have noticed we've had a slight musical change. So a shout out to the band Marvel barons of high energy rock and roll uh, a swedish band who wrote the hadel zone express which just seemed perfect Uh, and when i got in touch with them were really lovely guys and let us use their track i'm liking it seems on brand so thanks very much guys i hope you're listening and for my cheesy sign off you ready alan yeah i know you didn't like the last one but you're gonna like this
1: no i didn't i didn't I'm i'm not gonna like this one either i can feel it
0: until the next time we abyss you already Oh jeez! It's now that I'm a dad. It's my dad powers.
1: That's rubbish. That's proper rubbish.
0: Is that worse than we'll deep see you next time?
1: I uh, yeah. Is it? I think it's cumulative. <laughs> it's now...
0: Your disappointment in me is building.
1: <laughs> it, it's building on the rubbish one from last week and made it even more rubbish. But you know, well done for thinking of two things.
0: Well, I abyss you already, listener.
1: Stop it! I love you. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This was supported by our company Armatus Oceanic. If you want to explore the deep sea yourself, uh, we can help you do that. But if you want to bring the deep sea to your audience, if you want facts and storytelling about the deep sea, then we can help with that also.
5: Greetings, friends. Welcome to a new podcast, ASMR
2: for Oceanographers. Relax to the soothing sounds of working in oceanography. Do you hear that? The sound of the ocean. There's lots of things you can measure there. Maybe you'll draw a graph. Maybe you'll fit a trend line. Mm, Look at that correlation. What's that sound? Your model has finished running. Just look at your p-values. Less than 0.001. So significant it's not even a real number. Maybe a bit too significant. There are a lot of errors there as well. Mm, That might not be a good thing. Better run it again. Time to do some gut contents analysis. These have defrosted poorly. Oh god, the smell. Why does it smell so bad? It's all slime. What even is that? I've been doing this for 20 years, and I don't know what that thing is.
4: It's time to give the cat his eardrops.
2: Okay, give us a sec, I'll be there. Maintaining a good work-life balance. Sometimes you have to give the cat its ear medicine. He's on to you now. He won't be caught easily a second time. He doesn't know you're trying to help him. Work-life balance. I hope this
5: oceanography journey has soothed you. See you next time.